Hey, everybody. We're going to be giving away a copy of Mark Harris's book, The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar. All you have to do is go on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and comment on our post about this book. And uh, you will instantly be entered into a possible autographed copy of The Black Guy Dies First, which I personally recommend. So please go do that right now. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great. Where are you? Tell everyone where you are. Uh, I am in an Airbnb in Las Vegas for the NAB convention, which is going on right now. I'm so jealous. I wish I would have gone. Try not to be too jealous. This is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And uh, I'm only in day two, and I'm already pretty darn haggard, burnt Are out. Are you? Yeah, it's, oh. it's a lot. But still, it's good. It's been good. Overall, I would say that the industry has responded, and people are back to business and looking to do business, which is great. That's great to hear. We should uh, maybe do a deeper dive, but we'll do it maybe next week after NAB. But I, I'm always interested to see, like, what are the big trends out of NAB? What are what are, uh, what are are they hawking that they want us to buy? What are they hawking that we actually want? All that good stuff. I will tell you the investor money this time around is not VR or it's not uh, 3D. Those are both recent trends that I predicted were giant colossal wastes and no one should put a diamond. And there's a couple of new ones this time. Care to take a guess or a wager at, at what they might be? Uh, what, the, what the new trends are this year? Yeah. Really small drones. No. I'll give you one of them. AI. Lots of buzz and talk about how AI is going to transform and come in and change things. And there is definitely some, uh, I think, legitimate thoughts about that. But it's very interesting for me to hear from people who just think of it as a buzzword and don't really understand what AI is, at least as far as this industry is concerned. So it's it's very interesting and fun for me to listen listen to some of the uh, prophecies that people are putting forward. And I will tell you that um, AI is definitely a, a thing and people's jobs will get easier. I think editors' jobs in particular will get easier, but I don't think that editors are going to start uh, losing their job anytime soon. Editors' jobs have already gotten easier. I'm using AI constantly in Adobe Premiere nowadays, and every single piece of software has AI integration. I will tell you that it's only going to continue to get easier. The AI gets better, and there's going to be more features that will have AI assists. They will assist and, you in your And you know what that job. actually means? It actually doesn't mean your job gets any easier. It means that you end up being responsible for 10 times more than what an editor was responsible for just a few short years earlier. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to agree with you on that. You, there's more that is going to fall under the editor's purview, but I will say that the tasks will actually take be less time consuming than they used to be. Repetitive tasks, but then that means that here, we're just going to make you edit more stuff. But I, I will say that already, like a lot of the clients that I have now where we would have sent stuff off for transcription, they just assume I'm going to handle it because Adobe Premiere has transcription kind of built in with AI. For sure. Absolutely does. And I haven't been yet to the Adobe booth, but I know that they uh, are, are presentations aplenty showing about some of their new and latest features coming to the creative cloud. Very, very exciting. So today on the show, we have Mark H. Harris, who wrote a book called 
the black guy dies first black horror cinema from fodder to oscars it's a little different interviewing a book writer now we have interviewed like judith weston and and a few other people who've written books but it meant that i had to actually read the book that's I couldn't right ju- i couldn't just look at the book's imdb page and remember when i had pleasant memories of chapters in the book that i had never read had to actually read it had to actually prepare it was like actual journalism this has happened before i mean i think it's going to happen again i've been reading a book right now for someone to interview so yeah i, th- I, oh, yeah, I think no, this no. is great and, you know, I have already read the next book that I'm also going to be doing an interview about. Oh, that, so. that's fantastic. And, you know, I did not get to be part of this interview because I'm I'm here in Vegas. I, I'm not going to ask you to tell me anything about it, but I'm excited for it because I know this has been in the works for a while. And uh, I'm really glad that it finally happened, especially because you are a little bit of a horror fan. So was it oh basically my God, like a it horror geek fest? Well, like, yeah. When our, when our interview was over, we still talked for like another 20 minutes about horror stuff. I, it doesn't surprise me one bit. <laughs> no, no, it, it was great to talk to Mark and his book is awesome. And it's a good companion piece to the uh, Shudder documentary Horror Noir. That's about portrayal of people of color throughout horror history. And this book is informative. It's funny. It's well-written. It's well-researched. And if you're a giant horror nerd like me, in certain places, it was like I realized that certain movies that I love, it's not that they're problematic or that they need to be canceled. It's more just like take a step back and acknowledge the time that it came from and how newer movies could maybe do better. I think that's a really good attitude to take. And I try really hard whenever I'm seeing something that's dated and is a bit problematic to think that, you know what? I wish people were better back then, but there's really nothing we can do about that. All we can do is move forward. All we can do is be better now. Very true. Very true. I hope people people will be. So talking about moving forward, let's get into our close focus, which to me is some of the weirdest entertainment news. Agreed. It's just it's just weird. I mean, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just weird. And and of course, we're talking about why HBO Max is dropping HBO from their branding. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's numerous articles uh, that you can find on the Internet. The one that we're referring to is written by Wilson Chapman for uh, IndieWire. And uh, Wilson covers sort of their reasoning for doing this super weird move. Uh, You know, when I heard that they were dropping HBO from HBO Max, I was like, HBO is like the gold standard. They really are. Going all the way back, you know, for decades, but even in the more recent memory of of things like The Sopranos and The Wire, and it just seems insane to me to drop HBO from the streaming service. And a lot of the reasoning that I heard was that they're merging with Discovery and the Discovery people don't want to feel marginalized by the HBO people, even though they are marginalized by the quality of the work on HBO. This article specifically cites executives having a problem with the Big Bang Theory being on HBO Max. And look, I feel like there is an interface solution that they could have found to this. And I think that actually they really only need look at someone like Disney. Disney has done a really good job of having sort of like their channels inside of a channel. And like, you know, National Geographic is not offended at all to be associated with Disney. It's like, you know, these are two different worlds of, of things. And they give it its own button inside of Disney. So you've got some choices right at the top, including like, hey, you went to Disney. It's like, hey, you could you could go to this. I think that they missed an opportunity, though. I think what they really should have done is had separate apps for their different properties. And you pay one price, 
haha, a bundle. You pay one price and you get access to all of them. And then if someone doesn't want want it, it doesn't matter. It's included in that that price. I know this sounds like going right back to cable, but it's like if you've got all these properties and you want people to watch them, what I think they are concerned about is though the not having just the one app to feed all of this same stuff to people who might not otherwise look for it or or find it. But I'm telling you, I think you got to give people a little bit more credit. And I feel like people are not completely turned off by the idea of channels and having their own things kind of grouped together. They could have given people five apps or three apps or two apps or whichever they wanted to do for the price of one. And their audience would have felt like they were getting value and they would have explored the content in all of them because they wouldn't have had the option of canceling one to get a cheaper price anyway. Totally could have done it, missed an opportunity, think it would have been awesome. I also feel like, can you think of any streaming service that's been renamed as many times as HBO? We had HBO Now and then we had HBO Go and now we have HBO Max and then it's just going to be Max. I think technically Go is a separate service for the subscribers. But regardless, they kind of just kept merging things together. And I just don't think the branding of Max is nearly as good as HBO. HBO is strong and they could live, they could screw up the programming in HBO big time. Because let me tell you, uh, the reputation is so strong. They've had misses. They don't want to talk about certain shows that, they, that they've had that weren't exactly, you know, fan uh, favorites. Uh, John from Cincinnati. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I was going to say vinyl but you know uh really there's quite a few they have had quite a few misses over the years but that doesn't matter hbo is beloved and beloved and, for... and by the way you wouldn't watch vinyl and be like piece of crap it, not you, at all it you just, would just wasn't watch vinyl and be like yeah it just didn't it just didn't connect you know that happens and and there's nothing wrong with that Let and max of course max conjures up cinemax which nothing against cinemax they had good shows like banshee but they're mostly known for softcore pornography from like 1980 through like two years ago yeah that, that's fair so yeah i think that it's another misstep i kind of feel like people got used to hbo max just the same way they got used to Disney Plus and they got used to so many other of these services that kind of like added a little suffix and said it's a new thing to change it after people were used to it. And now also dropping the iconic HBO in favor of Max, which I even think Cinemax for a while did refer to themselves as Max. I certainly know that the program guide for like my local cable service shortened it to Max. So, yeah, yeah I. Now. This it, is- it reminds me a little bit and you know maybe maybe this proves that they're right to do this but it kind of reminds me of when sci-fi channel rebranded themselves as syfy which they still are and it made a lot of people go like what's that i i think that sci-fi rebranded because they needed a rebrand and i think that hbo max is rebranding and do- doesn't need a rebrand but, but they okay. just rebranded hbo Thanks. max has been out for what two years yeah It'd be like if Netflix rebranded every two years and you're like, okay, like to me as a consumer, as someone who's going to potentially spend money on a monthly subscription to this, it makes me go like, are they going to cancel this? Is this going to go away? And we already know and have talked about on the show how like HBO is just disappearing some of their shows like Westworld, which completed its run less than a year ago and got taken completely off the service. Yeah, it really makes me feel like They've got plans for other apps that they want to sell subscriptions to, that they want to charge money for individually, and they want to fill those with content. They wanted to take stuff that they had in one place and stick it somewhere else. And like, I was actually in the process of watching a series called Infinity Train, 
Infinity Train's gone. I can't find that anywhere. It's just Infinity just gone. My Ass. They yeah. should have called it Finite Train. That they would have been way more. Finite Train would have been appropriate. So. Oh, man. But yeah. Anyway, it is All what I know is. is I'm not paying for the blue check mark on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Nor, nor should you. Well, hey, why don't we get to the interview with Mark Harris? Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so our guest today is Mark Harris, who co-wrote a book called The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar, with Robin R. Means Coleman as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. I think this might even be a good place to really start. I saw a lot of annoyed people on Twitter who were complaining about the dearth of Oscar nominations for Nope. And Mm -hmm. as a fan of Jordan Peele and a fan of horror movies, I'm just used to horror movies getting completely overlooked at every (laughs) uh, award ceremony. And in fact, Get Out to me is kind of the exception to that, where Mm -hmm. a horror movie was like so standing on the nerve of where we were as a society that it was unavoidable to talk about it. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it is really the ugly stepchild of Hollywood, really. I mean, it's the genre that I think is most looked down on with disdain in terms of, you know, awards and, and critical appeal. So mm. I'm, I'm like you, I really, I never expected Nope to get any nominations or anything like that. The, the only reason I might think it might is just because Jordan Peele has a history. And so, you know, the name recognition might convince yeah. some people to throw him in there, but I wasn't too surprised. I, I did allow myself to get a little uh, hopeful in the last couple of years with a movie like Us or there's another movie uh, called His House, a British uh, yes. haunted house movie I saw it. that I thought was exceptional. And I thought, you know, OK, this is really well made. It has good gravitas. It has good drama. It's scary. It has a, a message. And I thought, oh, maybe Hollywood will recognize this and, you know, kind of push it through. But no, it, it never got anything. So I, I'm just used to it now. So, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, anything that comes is, is gravy to me. So um, I think Hollywood and people in general still, when they think of horror, they think of cheesy slasher movies. And so I think that kind of stigma has just ridden with it over the years and, and, and it's hard to get rid of. So let's go uh, and hop into your book, Black Guy Dies First, which you co-wrote with Robin R. Means Coleman. It's a fascinating read. It's really cool. And as a horror fan and a horror filmmaker myself, there was a lot of me reading it and being like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, like, ah, <laughs> oh, God. And I don't know if you mentioned it in the book, but like, I always remember uh, there was a, a ripoff of John Carpenter's The Thing that came out in the late 80s called Leviathan and Ernie Hudson mm-hmm. was in it and he almost makes it to the end. <laughs> and I was and I even remember I was in high school seeing him get killed and I'm like, why why do you got to kill off Ernie Hudson? Could, <laughs> couldn't he is it he fought so so valiantly. So what was it that made you want to write, you know, to write this as a book and kind of put all these I'm going to say like a lot of them are clichés, like put them out there in a very entertaining, I should say, compendium like this. <laughs> I mean, this was kind of a dream project to me. It, it's usually a culmination of my life as a horror fan basically. <laughs> I mean, I've I've watched horror since I was, you know, 10 or 12 years old and um regardless of genre, I've always paid attention to the black characters cuz when I was growing up in the 80s, there were so few of them on TV and in movies. Mm. I remember literally if if a black character came on TV, I'd be like, there's a black person on TV, there's a black person on TV (laughs) running through the house. So it was really, you know, a rare occasion and something that I really paid attention to regardless of the genre. And so when I got into horror, 
it really, you know, stood out even more because the black character, whenever there was a black character, typically they would end up dead because, you know, they're not the star, so they got to go basically in horror movies. So, I mean, this book really is a culmination of my whole experience. I, I started a uh, website called Black Horror Movies in 2005 because I kind of got interested in like who's tracking and who's documenting these instances of black people in horror movies and black people making horror movies and that sort of thing. And I, I couldn't find anything. So I thought, hey, who better to do it than me? So I just started my own website. And then I started tracking more diligently the portrayals of black characters in horror. So when this opportunity came up, it was, you know, like a godsend to me. The book has been done for a long time before it ever got published. So, um, oh, really? It's really been been a long time coming. <laughs> really oh, glad man. it's finally out there. Yeah. As I'm reading it, and again, I'm a horror fan, so I want to read anything that's an analysis of horror. But I was thinking about the version of this book you could write about romantic comedies or mainstream dramas, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, to me, and and what kept occurring to me, and I'm curious about your thoughts about this, is like horror is when it's done well, in my opinion, very t- deeply transgressive. And so it's often because it's transgressive, it's off, often progressive, like it's often taking a political stance, not not accepted by the mainstream, whereas mm-hmm. like rom-coms and, and a lot of regular old dramas are often like maintaining status quo. Mm-hmm. So is it important to hold horror to a higher standard when it comes to representation and diversity in the way it is handled than it is to hold mainstream films? Or is it maybe because it's like the tip of the spear of a genre where like, if this stuff is going to get explored, it's going to probably be in genre science fiction, horror, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I think that horror tends to push boundaries, not just because of the edgy material, but also because not much is expected of it from yeah. the mainstream. Like, People aren't like, oh, what's horror going to do next? Or, you know, it's looked down upon, so people don't really expect much from them. So I think they have the freedom to kind of explore new things. And so I think in horror, there is a tendency to go down different routes. And I think the thing about horror that's interesting is it kind of reflects society's fears and anxieties. So I think when it comes to race, it helps to analyze horror specifically because it is something that whether it's intended as a statement or not, it tends to be a statement. You know, even the cheesiest slasher or whatever, I think, can reveal something about what people feared at the time yeah. that the, the movie was made. So, you know, the Elm Street movies are, you could kind of say, was a fear of the uh, invasion of the insular nature of the suburbs and stuff like mm. that, you know, kind of fear about something coming in and attacking this perfect environment. So, yeah, definitely horror can be fruitful in terms of, you know, analyzing what people are fearing. And and so race is kind of one of the biggest touchstones in America in terms of fear and anxiety. So I think it really is something that could be valuable to, to kind of analyze race in terms of the horror genre. You mentioned it in the first chapter of the preface, you know, Night of the Living Dead. George Romero, whose politics were extraordinarily progressive, cast Dwayne Jones as the lead in Night of the Living Dead. But still, spoiler alert for those who, you know, you've had about 53 years to watch it, still doesn't (laughs) quite make it to the end of the movie. He's the last one, but he doesn't make it. But I feel like Romero, he would cast people like him and Ken Foray in, in his stuff and would often have somebody of color and also a woman in the leads of his movies. But how does that get bent towards the cliches? Because I feel like 
you look back at some of that and it and some of it falls into cliche. Sometimes a cliche is just people copying something that somebody else did that worked. Sometimes it's revealing a, a deeper uh, issue in, in the writing. Well, where do you think that happens? I mean, Nine Living Dead, I think, was a real anomaly in terms of, you know, it was so far ahead of its time. Like it would have been ahead of its time 20 years later, I think. Agreed. I mean, I think I remember watching it when I was probably 12 or so in the in the mid 80s and being blown away that there was this black character in the lead of this movie that seemed like ancient to me. But even in the 80s, it still would have been like, wow, there's a black hero in this movie. So, yeah, I mean, I think that movie is really so much of an outlier. It's hard to really put it in the line of the history of black characters dying because the black character dying trope is really a, a form of marginalization of the black characters. You know, they're they're not the heroes in the story. So in, in horror movies where there's a, a bloodlust and, and a demand for a body count, if you're not the hero, you end up getting killed. So that's really kind of the gist of what we're talking about in the book in terms of ways that black characters have been marginalized historically. You know, they've been put into these roles, the best friend or the authority figure or the voice of reason, somebody who's not the hero who can easily be discarded and it won't affect the, the storyline very much. But we did start with Night of Living Dead in the book and Spider Baby as kind yeah. of a way to uh, show the opposite ends of the spectrum. Spider <laughs> Baby was really like the prototypical black guy dying first. It had Mantan Moreland who just pops up and then within five minutes of, of the opening credits, he's really, he's dead. He doesn't have a even have a name for his character. He just has a few lines and he's just chopped right off the bat. So um, we kind of use those two to show the range of how things were and how they could be, you know, mm. the spider baby is the bottom of the barrel in terms of black representation. And then Night of Living Dead kind of was so far ahead of the time. It was really an indication of how things could be, even, even though the black character did die he was the hero. He was kind of a forerunner to today's heroes, like in Get Out and that sort of thing. So, and also, um, him dying in, in that movie isn't special. Everybody dies. All the characters <laughs> in that movie are dead by the end. <laughs> so. Exactly, exactly. And he had the most poignant death, I guess yeah. you could say. He yeah, really it's, the, felt one, it's for, the one that hurt the most. Like you feel this guy yeah. working to stay alive and save all these people all night, <laughs> only to just be shot exactly. by basically a mob. <laughs> So a real life example of a situation here. I saw uh, Horror Noir on Shudder, which you're, you're in, and it's a wonderful documentary. I, I recommend it to everybody. And then shortly thereafter, I was casting a project. It was for Audible. That's a fully narrative, full cast project. And as I think what is a better, an improvement in our industry, the discussion with the executives came up about diversity in the roles. And the lead character was African-American. One of the other leads was African-American. And there was a character who gets killed, who kind of sacrifices herself about two thirds of the way through the story. And it was brought up and I have a genuine dilemma and I'm curious what you think about this, which is we floated the idea of having an African-American or Latino or, you know, not a white person in that role. And then it was like, mm. after watching horror noir, I was like, I don't want the person <laughs> who sacrifices themselves to be that. Like, I feel like it falls into cliche, but then I have the opposite feeling, which is, 
I'm depriving someone of even being considered for a job now. Like, you know, this is mm-hmm. this is work for an actor. And in uh, horror noir, they talk about this a lot. Like, this is good. This is solid work. You're getting a role in the craft and it's going to get a huge, you know, national release. It's it's good for your career. It's good for your wallet right now. Um, as a filmmaker and a, and a white guy, how should I be thinking about this stuff so that I'm doing as much good by my choices as I possibly can? <laughs> wow. This is a lot of pressure on me now. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that the discussion is being had at all. I mean, which is good because I, I mean, I'm not not an insider at all, so I, I don't really know mm. what conversations are being had. So it's good to know that that's even being considered. I mean, I would say in your situation, definitely since the protagonist and some other leads are are people of color. I mean, I I would definitely not feel bad about having a, a sacrificial person of color as well. So, I mean, I think that definitely balances that out in terms of that. I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, it's hard to take one project individually and say, this will make a difference or whatever. It's really a, a more of an industry-wide thing where it's like you got to kind of have more of a um, systemic change and a systemic conversation to be had. But, you know, each project adds up and and it does bleed into the whole industry. So, I mean, I think it is something good to be talked about. And I think in your, like I said, in your situation that you're, I think you're good in terms of (laughs) if you have the the black lead and, 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 you know, I wouldn't think twice about having a black person. Like the negative reviews at the end product on Audible, the ones that are negative and most of the reviews are positive, but the ones that are negative uh, complain about it being woke. So, uh, oh, yeah, so that's <laughs> that's the code word for anything that's not white now yeah. or white, white, straight, cisgender. It, it's just woke. Just diversity is woke now, apparently. So it's it. I wouldn't take that as a, a real complaint. <laughs> so getting back to your book, The Black Guy Dies First, it feels like a lot of what you're cataloging, you know, m- making a little bit of fun of, I mean, you're, you're telling us in a fun way, are kind of a list of cliches that, you know, are inaccurate portrayals that have just fallen into cliche. You know, uh, could you go through some of the other cliches besides the black guy dies first, some of the other tropes that these movies tend to fall into? Yeah. I mean, Hollywood has found ways to pigeonhole black characters into these roles that any way to avoid them being the hero, basically. Mm. So, I mean, you have things like, you know, the best friend, the authority figure, who's kind of like the cop who's the hero comes to and like, it's like, oh, there's a killer out there and the cop doesn't believe him, that sort of thing. You have like the the voice of reason, like somebody who's telling them, don't go in those woods or that sort of thing. <laughs> you have the sacrificial Negro, which kind of we've talked about just now, is just, you know, the, the person whose job it is to just basically say, Save yourself. And even if it really doesn't make any sense, they kind of step in the way. And then even though they could run away with the hero, they decide to stick around and, and take a machete to the head or something. So yeah. um, there's also the magical Negro, which is a favorite of Stephen King's, uh, <laughs> you know, black characters who have this kind of supernatural ability, but typically they use it just to, to help the the white main character succeed in their their goals yeah you bring um, up this i mean i know it's more a kubrick thing than a stephen king thing but in the shining and it, and it hurts yeah. my heart because i love the shining but i recognize everything you're saying about the way they they handle the <laughs> scatman Carruthers character in that movie and it's it almost seems unfair you know like no and i mean i i love the movie too i mean it's it's, it's kind of a it's a weird dichotomy because I, I do love a lot of these movies, but I still can recognize the flaws and the, the tropes that they're leaning into. So yeah, it's Scatman really uh, 
they did they did him dirty in that one. He yeah. <laughs> he went through a whole lot to get there, and he lasted about two minutes <laughs> once he got there. And the thing about The Shining but, too is like literally only two people die in The Shining: him and Jack Nicholson. <laughs> like those are the only two people you actually see get killed in the movie. Uh, yeah, the only ray of light really is that he did indirectly save them because he brought the snow cat that they used to get out mm-hmm. at the end. So. I guess you could say that he did save the day in that way. So R.I.P. Scatman. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, his death does kind of seem almost superfluous in the story. Like if if he hadn't died, if it had been like you said in, in your book, if it had been like the book, mm-hmm. you know, he he could have been a heroic figure. He could have been part of saving Wendy and, and Danny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we mentioned in the book, there was some discussion where I think Kubrick or somebody decided that there needed to be somebody to be killed. And yeah. He was really the only only person to be killed other than, you know, other than Jack. Uh, you, you also yeah. point out that he had to do it like 25 times and land on the hard floor. <laughs> and then they didn't even use the shot of him landing on the hard floor. And he was like in, <laughs> in his like 60s or 70s at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. But, uh, he seemed like a really good sport about it, I think. <laughs> so as I was reading the book, I like some of the ones that came up to me were like The Shining, The Serpent and the Rainbow, Angel Heart. You kind of talk about the tropey tropes that a lot of these movies fall into. And these are also movies that I just love. Now, I, I know that they're from another time, you know, even though it doesn't feel like another time because they came out when I was, you know, a teenager or, what, or younger. But like, mm-hmm. I remember them coming out. I remember them being contemporary. But like, how do you score mm-hmm. the circle of looking at a movie like that and being like, this is full of tropes or has tropes? potentially racist tropes and i feel like in the case of the serpent and the rainbow especially like wes craven was making a real statement about tyranny and you bring up some of the other movies that that he did like the people under the stairs which it's like Mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of wes craven's movies if you scratch the surface there's like something about economic or racial or societal justice that wes craven was always working on Mm -hmm. but in so doing he still has kind of a pretty cliche voodoo bad guy in uh, the serpent and the rainbow yeah, yeah. And I'm a Wes Craven fan. I love his movies. I loved, I, I enjoyed Serpent and the Rainbow and the People on the Stairs and everything. But, you know, I think it is still important to, even for movies we, we love, I think it's still important to kind of recognize some of these things that are kind of endemic in the in the industry as a whole. So it's, you know, we can point it out and recognize it for the future. Even a movie like People on the Stairs, which was really revolved around this these black characters and the wrong that is being done to them by these slumlords, uh, the racist slumlords. The portrayal of the black home life was still a little, left a little bit to be desired. And, you know, the, the sister was a prostitute with babies and the place where they lived in, even though it was supposed to be like, you know, a slum, it was really just like some otherworldly thing with like feral dogs and like just all <laughs> kinds of ridiculous stuff. So... It is still important, I think, to, to call things like that out and stuff like Candyman, which I, I loved and I enjoyed the original Candyman. I watched it in the theater. I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is still good to point out, you know, that there are some issues with, you know, the portrayals of the urban community in there. Like, you know, it was kind of like this urban jungle full of it was kind of the modern equivalent of the Tarzan movies of the 50 or the 30s or whatever, where, you know, the white intrepid white explorer mm. was going into this urban this this dangerous black territory with these savages and so that's kind of still the vibe you kind of get in candy man and 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 the whole 
imagery of a black man lusting after a white woman has is kind of fraught with a history. And so it's it's important to remember the context of we're in America and that we do have these histories that you kind of have to be mindful of. And so when you're doing these movies, you kind of have to always keep things in mind and, and try to avoid the potential minefield, which I understand is really hard to do. And, and I know this day and age, you are mindful of trying to, you know, being canceled, quote unquote, and that sort of thing. But um, I do think the awareness is really something that we need to to have and to, to keep going. It, it's getting better now, but there has traditionally been a lack of diversity behind the camera, i.e. writers, directors, cinematographers. Mm-hmm. And on our podcast, uh, you know, like I think the first time we interviewed a woman, I started talk. I asked her questions about like being a woman trying to break into cinematography. And I realized afterwards it really wasn't her story. And Ilya and I had mm-hmm. a had a serious conversation about it. Like, let's not if, if somebody brings it up in an interview, we'll talk about it. If they mm-hmm. don't bring it up, we'll never bring it up because because it should be the norm. And we sh- and we shouldn't be like asking you what about your background made it hard for you, because obviously this business is difficult for literally everybody. Nobody nobody gets a free ride here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, like we are seeing a rapid increase, I'd say, over the last 10 years in uh, diversity behind the camera. But we've had people like Ernest Dickerson, who did uh, didn't he do he did Demon Knight. Uh, which mm-hmm. you talk about. I love Demon Knight. Yeah, me too. But you bring up Demon Knight and uh, some of the characters as falling into the tropes, even though, you know, it basically ends with Jada Pinkett uh, winning out. Mm-hmm. But what about that? Like, what about the uh, lack of diversity traditionally? And and did Jordan Peele really bust that open? I know that he's doing everything in his power, in his position in, in, in the industry to give opportunities to people now who may not have gotten them before, you know, simply because of their ethnicity. But uh, talk a little bit about that if you could. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to increase diversity in front of the camera is to increase diversity behind the camera, because when you have black people writing, directing, I think they will kind of keep things more in line in terms of opening up the opportunities for other characters of color to to come through. And I think that Jordan Peele definitely has opened a lot of doors. I mean, I think Hollywood's kind of a creature of uh, the moment. <laughs> so yeah. every, anything that seems like it works, they will run with it. So, I mean, with Get Out, it was a runaway smash. And so I think they were like, oh, okay, let's go in this direction. It remains to be seen if they will continue in that direction. But I think for at least for the time being, they have allowed for some more black leads in genre movies in, in, in all in all genres, really. Yeah. But in, in horror, horror as well. Um, I think still there's still a level of discomfort in terms of putting out really major, big horror movies with black leads. I think a lot of the, the ones that have come out have been streaming ventures on Hulu and Netflix yeah. and Amazon, that sort of thing, which I think is a lot less risky uh, for the studios to do. So, um, well, is that a squeamishness about black people in leads, or is that a squeamishness about horror movies, or is that like the Venn diagram where they converge? <laughs> Probably a, a little bit of both, um, but I do think that historically there's been uh, an excuse not to have a lot of black leads in a movie because it makes it a quote unquote black movie. And then, Mm. you know, I think a lot of times they'll say, Oh, black movies don't do well internationally. So we can't really put a whole lot behind this. I've had a producer say that to my face uh, for this movie (laughs) that I directed. Yes. 
it was funny because they were arguing that to me and we ended up, our lead was Carlos Bernard. So, you know, we ended up with a person of color in the lead, but it was still like, it was explained to me when I was making the case for who I thought should be the, uh, one of the actors who we should consider for the hero. That exact case was made to me. And I, and I still think about it today. You gotta be, mm-hmm. you gotta be fucking kidding me, man. Like, you know, <laughs> firstly, it doesn't need to make that much money overseas if it does really well here, but also like, Genre movies, traditionally, like a lot of the ones that work, they're cast with unknowns. You don't know who the actors are. Like, you know, who knew who Heather Leggenkamp was before Nightmare on Elm Street? Or you could go on and on and on. Like, the cast is usually not the contingent thing. Yeah, I mean, I think if you make a movie that's good enough, I mean, it will translate to wherever. And and I think a lot of the big blockbusters now that are have like people of color in the leads from, you know, The Rock or Vin Diesel or people like that, I think that is kind of at least hopefully helping to open up Hollywood's minds in terms of, you know, maybe we can have a little more diversity in our cast and still succeed in Afghanistan or wherever they're releasing the movies. <laughs> <Spain. laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's the thing that I've read that is was like the go-to excuse for a lot of years in terms of not having black leads in, in these movies. So, so yeah. Uh, Well, I feel like I've used up a lot of your time, but I I did want to talk about one thing that you talk about in the book that I thought was hilarious, which were bad rap songs in the end credits of (laughs) horror movies and how and when that kind of came to be. Although like the Freddy one, I, I, I mean, they're all goofy and catchy. Like they're not, I don't know that they're to be taken seriously as music, Mm -hmm. but I guess what underlies that is like, there's kind of a worship of black culture and you get a certain amount of credibility by co-opting it to a degree by doing things like having a rap song in the end credits or whatever. So what is the balance there? Why would the same group be like marginalized, but also kind of like, hey, look at how cool I am. I like the fat boys, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the story of black culture in, in the U.S. a lot. You know, it's like there's love for what black people can bring, but not necessarily a love for the black people themselves, you know? So I think it was an interesting phenomenon to me because it definitely stood out in my mind, like from, I guess, I guess it just grew out of like the rise in popularity of hip hop in like the late 80s. That seemed to be like the go-to thing when they wanted to cap off a movie with like a fun song or whatever. It's like, oh, what's fun right now? We gotta, let's bring in a rapper, you know? And a lot of times they were terrible arguably most of the time they're terrible <laughs> um yeah but but actually probably probably my favorite is ll cool j's uh deep blue sea <laughs> song at the end my hand is like a shark's fin or something yeah or my hat is like a shark's fin i think which was is like, that what he says i think which is <laughs> I, I don't know what that means <laughs> i just like are you underwater swimming in a hat? What I don't I don't know, but um, <laughs> it's, I, I always thought it was my hand, but you know, like I have to admit, I haven't I haven't I haven't done a deep dive into that one, literally. But no yeah, it, it's yeah, they were awful. I think the only one that I remember liking was the end of the People Under the Stairs, where it had like a a song by Redhead Kingpin called Do the Right Thing. And that was just like I remember it because it was actually a popular song at the time. It was already a song that was doing well so i mean i remember thinking, oh okay it's like a real hip-hop song at the end okay but yeah it was like just something that really stood out in my mind and and obviously for years i kept it in my brain and then brought it out for the for the book and just kind of (laughs) went through some of the uh the worst offenders (laughs) well i know it's not really a horror movie but i also often go to uh mc hammer's adam's family theme (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, that was something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we go, where do you see the direction of this heading? Maybe what are some of the cliches that we're falling into now, the tropes you're starting to see emerge in the, uh, let's say, the last five, six years? It's a good question. I mean, I think that as much as I love Get Out and its impact, I think we have to be wary of the risk of trying everybody trying to repeat Get Out and being the next mm. Get Out. And I think that's kind of what Hollywood, like I said, they Hollywood goes with what's hot. So I think they kind of think Get Out, oh, Get Out worked. So what's the next Get Out? And so I think we've had some movies that maybe have tried to shoehorn kind of some social commentary into things where they didn't need to be. I think the key to continuing black horror and having it be a real lasting part of the horror genre is to have diversity within the storytelling. Not everything can be get out. You can have stupid, goofy black slasher movies, you know, you can have, you know, Mm. other kinds of horror movies, just like you can have the same kind of range within, you know, quote unquote white horror movies. So I think the key is kind of to help show the range of blackness, you know, wherever it may land on the spectrum. It might be something that has a lot of social commentary. It might be something that doesn't. So that's really the thing I think we need to kind of keep in mind to help things going. Because if everything tries to be the next get out and then a couple of them fail in a row, then Hollywood's going to be like, oh, done with that. Let's move on to something <laughs> else. And so... So yeah, that's what I appreciate about about Jordan Peele is I feel like Jordan mm-hmm. Peele it, with each one of his movies has just taken on completely different subject matter. Like yeah. none of them they, they all feel like they are made by him. They all have some there's some un, I I couldn't tell you what it was, but there's something about them that feel like one of a piece, mm-hmm. but none of them are the same story. Yeah, he's been great. He's been he's wildly imaginative and he really, you know, expands beyond what you think will happen. I mean, you can't really predict what his movies are going to be about at all. And and even as you're watching them, you're not quite sure where it's going to go. Yeah. I yeah. feel like he's one of our greatest living directors right now. And I'm just excited that he seems to have chosen horror as the thing to go into because it's made horror feel like more legitimate <laughs> pursuit for <laughs> yeah. me anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of good horror movies that have come out in recent years by like new directors. And yep. I'm just like afraid that they're going to like abandon horror and be like, Oh, I proved my point. Now I'm a real director. I'm going to move on to something else. So I'm glad I really appreciate him sticking to the genre. I actually feel like that's one of the, like growing up, I, I think probably like you, I read a lot of Fangoria. I don't know if you did, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, even, even today, here's the new issue of Fangoria <laughs> sitting right on my desk. And to me being a horror filmmaker was, you know, like you'd see, John Carpenter and Wes Craven, David Cronenberg, like it seemed like a job you could have. These people were were making this stuff and you would see people who kind of moved in and made a horror movie so they could show that they could make a bunch of money and then they'd move on to something else. But I feel Mm -hmm. like more people are kind of seeing the value in genre now. And also when I was growing up, there was kind of a dude bro, a a white dude bro-ness around horror movies and horror movies were very conservative leaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember Stephen King wrote an article about how um, like why did conservative 
conservatives hate horror movies, they have the exact same ethics. Like in, <laughs> in a Friday the 13th movie, if you smoke dope or you listen to music or you're not nice to your parents, you get killed. It's only the purest person who makes it to the end of those <laughs> those movies. But I feel like we're in a different moment now and it feels a little bit less, uh, I'm just going to say gross than, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, there are always people like Sam Raimi or whatever who I thought were just doing phenomenal, mind-blowing work or Stuart Gordon. But I feel like now it's more of an acceptable artistic statement. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I think horror is probably of all genres, I think it's the most self-aware of its tropes and its tendencies. So I think that it really analyzes itself and it kind of can see, oh, these are the expected ways which will go with this story. These are, you know, we have to have these beats and this sort of thing. But, you know, you can also use it to, to be like, oh, because this is the way where it's expected to go, let's go this way. Let's let's kind of challenge things. And, and like you said, it's a transgressive genre. So, I mean, I think it can challenge itself and kind of say, oh, we're going to do things differently. We're going to, the heroine or the hero doesn't have to be this paragon of virtue. They can be kind of a sloppy, yeah. sloppy person who's got issue, <laughs> issues. So, uh, so, yeah, I still love the genre. It's still fun. It's still my favorite thing to watch. So keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, before we go, where can people find you online if they're looking for your stuff online or they want to interact with you? I'm at, uh, my site is blackhorrormovies.com and I'm on Twitter now and then at, at Blackula is my handle. So I grabbed, nice. yes, <laughs> I grabbed that early on. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good move. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. All right, so that was Mark Harris. It, it's not often that I interview anyone who has even heard of Alien Raiders. As on my Zoom, there's an Alien Raiders poster behind me. And uh, the fact that he uh, he was like, I saw Alien Raiders. It was like, you what now? <laughs> I was very excited. Nice. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is that time for our patent pending short ends segment. I can only imagine how many obsessions you are having being at NAB right now, but what is your obsession? Wow, I think I have to say that virtual stages are probably my obsession. You're talking about like LED volume kind of stages? LED volumes, yes, and sort of the virtual stages that made popular by like Mandalorian. Uh, that is definitely something that has captured the venture capitalists' money for this industry and is definitely a thing right now. And I will tell you, Although I am only on the fringes of this and I have an, enough uh, knowledge and experience about the virtual stages, the LED walls to be dangerous. What I can tell you is that this is not going to go away the way that like 3D and VR and some of the stuff I mentioned just at the beginning of the show were fads that went away. LED walls are something that have existed for rock concerts and live events for quite some time pixel pitch or how close the individual LEDs are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. When you combine that with uh, clever production skills, pretty much means that you can put a couple of actors in front of a camera and make them anywhere in the world or out of the world, depending on what you want, if you've planned appropriately. And what that means is that you could be in a basement somewhere or even as I saw at NAB today, the back of a semi-truck, which has been converted into a LED volume stage. So you could literally drive a car into the back of a truck and do your driving shots, or you could do all kinds of different things. It's 
it is the stage will come to you in the future or you will go to the stage and if you've planned appropriately you can sufficiently fake locations from anywhere real or imagined which is amazing i mean i remember when we talked to greg fraser about the mandalorian that was something that that kept coming up to me is that the mandalorian when i saw it i didn't know when season one came out i didn't know anything about this technology and i've recently uh, my son was we were watching all the star wars movies and one day he insisted that we needed to watch something with baby yoda in it because baby yoda <laughs> Man, the kids love Baby Yoda. So uh, I was like, eh, is Mandalorian too violent? I watched a little bit of it. I'm like, it's no more violent than Return of the Jedi. Let's just, we'll just go for it. And so we started watching it. And you have to give Greg Fraser all the credit in the world. When it's shot right, you cannot tell that any chicanery is going on. And it's so clever and so amazing and transportive. When it's done wrong, uh, mm-hmm. And I'm looking at certain episodes of Book of Boba Fett, which used it uh, not as well, in my humble opinion. When it's done wrong, I feel like it screams out to you that it, that it, it looks like old rear screen projection. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure the technology and the techniques and stuff like I remember when we talked to Abe Martinez just a few months ago, he was talking about some of the things he was doing with LED LED walls and stuff like that, even on location, like the, the kinds of stuff you can do with them. And it's pretty amazing. But when I realized what they were doing with The Mandalorian, it was like that does kind it is a humongous game changer. Now, the ones you're seeing, are they utilizing uh, Unreal Engine to create the images that, that are being rear projected? Are they using a sensor on the camera to create the proper parallax and all that stuff? Uh, yes and no. There's various forms of this and there's different ways that you can do it without necessarily investing in Unreal Engine and going down that path. Unreal Engine, though very popular, it is, of course, highly possible to do that. But there's quite a bit of a, a simpler version where it is more like rear projection that is being employed. And there's sort of some hybrid stuff, too, because if you wanted to do it with a green screen, it's kind of like you just turn on the knob to green. And now you've got the sort of the mobile green screen wherever you go as well. There's there's all kinds of cool tricks you can do. Well, even I think Greg said that, like, you know, for some of the robot kind of characters or whatever, if they needed a green screen just on part of the yes. screen, they could just make a little green square that went around somebody's head. And that was that. It's I mean, I see the convenience and the uh, and like what we're going to be able to do with it. And obviously, LED screens are only going to get better and better and the pixel pitch will get, you know, smaller. Is that what we're looking for? Yeah, exactly. Smaller pitch, higher resolution. And as they get closer and closer and closer to what essentially something I think we've talked about on the show before was you know, sort of this NHK idea from from decades ago of like they could make these incredibly high resolution Trump Loy effects where you know, a screen fools the eye, makes you think it's a window. If you can do that for this sort of thing too, if you get it down and then the price continues to come down, essentially anyone could have this sort of thing in their home or their basement or their bedroom. It'd be pretty nice if you've got that basement office to be able to, you know, flip a switch and one of your walls suddenly feels like a window and you're looking out at Waikiki or wherever you you might want to imagine you, uh, you are on the moon, hmm. on a desert isle. You know, you, it, it's up to you. It, it's the exact same view that I have, but facing a different direction. Like, uh, yeah, you know, actually it'd be, re- it'd be really cool. It's like, oh yeah, my neighbor used to have a tree there and they chopped it down. But with my virtual wall, the tree's back. <laughs> <laughs> Just mess with anyway. 
Anyway, so yeah. Ben, what what's what's your short end this week? What do you what do you? My, all about? my short end is is kind of a slightly delayed thing. Uh, I, I keep wanting to bring it up week week to week, and I haven't done it yet. And that's that. I'd say it was probably a month month and a half ago. Mid Journey came out with uh, version five. Uh-oh. Uh And Mid Journey is the uh, AI art, uh, you know, for generative art thing of my personal choice. I say Mid Journey is the best of the bunch. There's Stable Diffusion. There's Dolly, there's Blue Willow, there, you know, and there's always new ones. Mid Journey is just bonkers great. And, you know, the, the complaint before was it was hard to create consistent characters and also hands. It would always mess up hands and make hands would have 27 fingers and they'd be pointing in wrong directions. And they would all look like real fingers, but they didn't make any sense. And uh, it's still a little off sometimes. And there's still sometimes a bit of an uncanny valleyness to it. But I will say that recently for uh, a pitch deck that I was putting together, I didn't use AI art exclusively, but I did a bunch of mid-journey stuff to create images of the main characters. So I could say, like, here are the main characters and then pull IMDb kind of headshots of the various actors that you're thinking of. I, I would say, every, and every day there are more professional, realistic uh, uses for this stuff. And there are things where, you know, like there's the complaint that we're putting artists out of business, but it's like to put a pitch deck together, I never would have hired an artist at all. I just would have gone to like pitch deck, which I still do, and pulled some images or I might have just pulled, done a Google image search because I'm not distributing it and making money from it it's just an internal document and so having tools like this to be able to kind of create concept art if you're going to do real work you're still going to hire a real concept artist you're not going to it's not a precise enough tool yet and i i'm not expecting it to become precise enough precision isn't really what it does it's not a precise enough tool to be supplanting real artists when you need real artists but in a lot of places where you're like wow i wish i had a good i wish i had a workable sketch of x y or z it really is some pretty amazing stuff and also it's just good weird fun for uh you know goofing around and having it ideate for me it's usually something that's like super disgusting that would you know creep people out like i I, uh, I did one, I posted it to my Instagram recently of uh, happy kids playing with oversized wasp larvae. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's super gross. And, you know, I didn't tell Midjourney to do this, but they had some of the kids eating them. And I'm like, oh, hey, geez. you go, Midjourney. <laughs> and the kids look r- very real. Like it's getting realer and realer. And I feel like, you know, maybe by the time we get to Midjourney six or seven, will we ever cross the Uncanny Valley? I don't know. But it's interesting to see what it can do. And I think that. Chat GPT and some of the text-based AI stuff has been kind of hogging the spotlight a little bit. And I feel like generative art tickles my fancy way more. Like, I just think it's uh, it's a very interesting thing to do. And our friend Gabe Leonard, who's a very legitimate oil painter, like he's a, a fine art painter, he uses it all the time. He, he loves using it. And he said that he'll have an idea for a painting and he'll run that idea through it. And he'll see sort of like the 10 bad versions of his idea. And then he'll go, it, it, it enables him to open his mind to think of a newer, fresher way to do it. I think that that's going to be true of, of artists of all types and continuing to use AI into the future. I talked to someone today who has to do, to write a lot of copy and they do not ever use chat GPT for the copy, but they will often use it to ideate and to organize thoughts and to try to figure out directions. And then they write the whole thing themselves, but it's like, you know, the tools exist out there to try to uh, spark originality, spark creativity, and to essentially create your own, you know, feedback loop. So it's like, Hey, you've got an idea. You want to get some sort of opinion. It's more or less instantaneous or it's, it's very, very short turnaround. And if you want to get humans, that means sometimes you've got to then wait for humans who have the time to pay it 
proper attention. And, and you have get, to pay them money. Uh, exactly. You know? And get to give you the feedback. So. You know, who I think is maybe a little screwed, but probably still not is lawyers. Hmm. Because I feel like you could make an AI write up a contract really fast, but then you'd still want a real lawyer to go through it. Like I wouldn't trust a contract that was made up by chat GPT. Definitely not. Oh my God. That sounds like a terrible, terrible idea. That sounds right. It sounds like if you're a lawyer and you're going to spend your whole day writing up a contract for something and you can sort of generate a first draft of it with chat GPT and then go through and, and tweak it. It might take some of the dummy work out of it. Some of the repetitive stuff. I mean, I feel like much like with editing, it's AI takes the, the repetitiveness out of it. So if you're a lawyer, it might mean that you can churn out twice as many contracts in half the time or something. I don't know. Everyone who thinks that we're all going to be replaced with AI, like it, I do start to wonder like, well, what do you think people will do all day long? Like if we're not going to, if they're not going to write movies and make movies and be lawyers and write articles and stuff like what are humans going to do anymore? Are we just going to work at restaurants? Maybe I think what is likely is that the work will become more egalitarian and that you might not need 11 years of uh, of schooling for certain things or you might not need you know a certain amount uh, of training if you are good at using certain prompts and good at using certain ways yeah. and also that these networks continue to develop and so that you really can rely on the results because right now i would say the results from many of these things are unreliable but uh, yeah. at the same time, when it's something subjective like art, you might say it is 100% reliable. It, it's, it completely depends on a su- if it's something that is fact and truth-based or something that is subjective. And so we will see what happens. We, we will all be paying close attention and it will impact our lives. But I have a feeling that basically more complicated things becomes easier and more within reach of more people and people who are truly skilled. It's not a crutch. They get a new tool in their toolbox in order to do what it is that they're doing. For sure. All right. Well, I think that about wraps us up tonight. Uh, before we go, who should we thank? Let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Editing our, our show, making sure that don't sound like total doofuses and uh, succeeding pretty well. Uh, you know, I I, I eh, talked to someone. Me, to- I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to someone today who told me that like they only listen to three podcasts and ours is one of them. So I was, I was very flattered by that. Oh, that's pretty sweet. What are the other two? I didn't ask that question. I probably should have. Oh it's, man, it's I probably like you know, serial killers guide to. No, I don't know what the <laughs> other things are they they listen to. But, but regardless, uh, I was flattered that that we were one of them. So ben, yeah, I actually didn't ask you if people like go up to you and ask you and recognize your voice from the podcast when they meet you at NAB. Uh, occasionally, it happens, and definitely people see my badge. And I was wearing the podcast badge today, and people did definitely come up to me and wanted to talk to me from from that. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen everywhere. But it happens more often than not. So, so yeah, that's that. A couple times people Sweet. have recognized me, and I'm like, I don't know who that is, but but they knew who I was. So, all right. Well, let's also go ahead and thank our amazing producer Alana Cody, who arranged today's interview and and many others, and uh, basically all of them. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Ninety eight percent of them, at least. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll be like, Hey, I know so and so. Can we interview them? Uh, but it's, it's usually Alana saying like, Hey, we, we got Randy Tom on here and you're like, what, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, indeed. And of course, lastly, never leastly, Kay Zelatracci, who composed all the music you heard in this episode and most every episode. So, uh, let's thank Kay. Every episode, not most every episode, Wait. much like Alana. <laughs> ben, where can people find you? They want to find you. Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. You can check out my reel and, uh, find all my social media, uh, links and, uh, go on them, say hi. And, uh, 
you know, be my friend. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, usually you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, behind the scenes, I am toiling away when I am not, uh, you know, in, in front of the scenes. But uh, yeah, we have had a lot of uh, interesting sort of new marketing sort of stuff happening. And uh, you can find me on the uh, many of those sort of places. So if you're on the Instagram, I'm at Ilya Friedman. Reach out to me on Instagram. That's a place. That's a thing. If you're on Instagram, you can come look at some of my nauseating AI art experiments. At Ben Rock? Where, where is it there? It's uh, Benjamin underscore Rock, because when Instagram first came on board, I didn't think it was going to last. Yeah, I think a lot <sighs> of us thought that. So, mm, But you can see uh, happy kids playing in a bouncy house made of meat. That's another one that I have on there. Mm-hmm. Also, I went through a weird thing where I was like, AI looks like Al, so I would do like AI Pacino or AI Capone. And I, I posted some of those on there. So it's like Al Pacino is a robot. It's pretty awesome. Well, that sounds great. Uh, ben, I think that just about does it for this episode. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.